Welcome again, everybody. I want to say a special welcome to all of our game day kids that are here. Uh, game day basketball is something that happens every weekend, and uh, this is kind of game day weekend at Grace Church. So if you're a part of game day, welcome to, uh, to Grace. If your uh, kids are in it, welcome, and we're glad you're here. If you guys ever want to have a, just a blast, go over to the extension on Saturday morning. There's about 400 kids that are playing basketball and gazillions of parents and adults and grandparents are there. There's probably a thousand people there and there's an inflatable dinosaur. I'm just saying it doesn't really get any better than all of that. And it is so much fun to see it all happening. And uh, the kids are discipled and they're taught God's word and they're coached and they're prayed for. And we're very proud and grateful for all the game day stuff. So welcome. When you see kids running around in uniform, that's what they're doing. They're here hanging out this weekend. Uh, We're in a series right now called 30 and 30, Sowing Seeds of a Movement. And what we're doing is we're talking about directives that God gives corporately that apply to us personally. So directives that God gives corporately that apply to us personally. And so uh, 30 and 30 is the descriptor phrase that we use to talk about the the big movement of Grace Church. It's our belief that God has uh, asked us, called us to start 30 campuses or churches in a 30-year time frame. The Ellet Campus would be the next expression of that, and uh, we believe that God wants us to, to do that. We looked, instead of, instead of having one massive location, instead of having a 3,000-seat auditorium and everything that goes with it, what we wanna do is we want to multiply. We wanna plant many campuses that are different sizes and varieties, but all fruit-bearing. They all proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we look for places in Northeast Ohio where the gospel is not clear and not easily accessible. And we uh, look and say, can we be a part of helping that to happen and amplifying the gospel in those ways? And then we'll send people out, uh, send people out of the Bath campus and our other campuses as well. And uh, we'll go and we'll start these new works. So we're grateful to do that, excited to do that, but we also know that there's, uh, there's some uh, taxing to that. So we know that just at the Bath campus in the last three or four years, about a thousand uh, folks have gone from the Bath campus here uh, to help start new campuses and other works around uh, Akron, actually even around the world. And we're excited about that. What's been weird though is our attendance never changed. And so that means that about a thousand of us have come into the Bath campus in that same time frame. Uh, <clears throat> I know that many of you have been here the last uh, two, three years, which is fantastic. Many of you have accepted Christ in the last two, three years and have just recently become a Christ follower. That's fantastic as well. But that caused us to look and say, we probably should go back and look at some of the very core things that we believe God says makes up a church. Uh, things that we focus on, that we give a lot of our energy to, that we believe they're corporate directives that apply to us personally. And I wanna make sure that you guys know those things. So we've been looking at these. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the idea that God calls each of us personally to be people of justice, mercy, and humility. And we said, uh, since the church is a sum total of its individual parts, if you are a person of justice, mercy, and humility, then we will become a congregation that values justice, mercy, and humility. And that's the type of churches that we wanna start. And so we looked at that. And then last weekend, we looked at the idea of missions. And what is missions? We said missions is when we cross 
cultural barriers. So we'll learn a new language, go to a new culture, maybe another part of the world. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples. And then he said in Acts chapter one, you're gonna be, he's talking to Christ followers, you're gonna be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth. And so we talked about why do we do missions? Why do we send missionaries? That's a corporate directive that applies to me personally and we we work that through so if you guys miss those conversations or, or if this is even just your first weekend here i encourage you uh, go out to our website graceoha.org or uh, grab a podcast or even just use the app if you want and listen to them they're, they're really really important and if grace is your home that's like stuff you need to know because uh, you're going to wind up involved in it in one way or another and uh, stuff that you want to download even with your relationship with god so this weekend i want to i want to open up a, like a third section of this idea and it's the idea of multiplication <clears throat> And I wanna ask the question that many of you might be asking, why is Grace obsessed with starting other churches? Why do, why do churches start churches? Why is Grace like talking about that all the time and we're always celebrating that, doing that stuff? What would drive us to do that? And I wanna show you this from the scripture. Now, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ or if you're really new in your relationship with God, uh, what this is gonna be is kind of a, a little bit of a history lesson, but from the Bible. I wanna show you what the, the church of Jesus did and followers of Jesus did and why we then would do that. That's how we would kind of figure out what to do. We would look at what God said directly and then we would also look at what God made sure we knew through the Bible and we would kind of integrate those two things and build what's called a theology or an understanding of God. And so we would look at that and say, those are the things that we're gonna do then also as a church. So some of you may not have have ever seen this stuff before and I think you'll find it fascinating. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a great history lesson. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've never seen this before, then you're a part of this, the Bible would say. So it's important stuff for you to know. It's kind of your next phase of, of discipleship. And then for those of us who have uh, uh, followed Christ for a while, it might be a reminder or a focuser that this is what the church is and what the church is about, okay? So why do churches start churches, why would we prioritize that so strongly here at Grace Church? And we would say, well, it's right in the Bible and it's the heart of God and so we wanna lock into those things. So let me start by just showing you something that Jesus said, because Jesus described how he works and how he thinks in Mark chapter four. So if you got a Bible, grab it, open up to the book of Mark, Matthew, Mark chapter four. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs, it's page 702. In those Bibles, or if you wanna use your phone, uh, the app, all the notes and all the verses will be right there. And we're gonna, we're gonna move through the Bible a bunch today because we're looking at our broad view, so maybe keep yours handy. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible and the person next to you has a Bible, punch them in the face quickly and take their Bible. That God would like that, just go ahead and do that, it's fine. All right, and let me show you this. Mark chapter four, verse 26. In Mark chapter four, verse 26, Jesus describes what he calls the kingdom of God. Now let me kind of tell you what the kingdom of God is in a nutshell. The kingdom of God in a nutshell is everything that has to do with God, okay? So the church is a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, individual followers of Jesus are a part of the kingdom of God. Angels are a part of the kingdom of God. The, uh, heaven is a part of the kingdom of God. It's kind of this broad descriptor called the kingdom of God. And Jesus, using that descriptor, says 
this is what I am like or how the kingdom of God works. Verse 26, chapter four of Mark, Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel of the he- in the head, and as soon as the grain is ripe, He puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. And then Jesus uses a second descriptor in verse 30. Again, Jesus said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds on on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with with, uh, such big branches that birds can perch on them. So Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. You spread seed and the soil grabs it and the soil produces a a crop out of it. It's like a mustard seed you planted. It's this little thing that grows into this big thing, okay? Now we know from another part of the Bible what the seed is. Jesus tells us what the seed is. He says the seed is the word of God or what we would often call the gospel of Jesus. Now, the gospel of Jesus in a nutshell is this. The gospel of Jesus is, is good news and bad news. Good news and bad news. Bad news first. The gospel of Jesus would say, bad news, you are a sinner. Every human being that's ever been born is a sinner. If you've ever stolen, told a lie, had a wrong motive, had a nasty thought, you're a sinner. And the Bible says that every human being sins and that breaks our relationship with God. That's the first part of the gospel. The second part of the gospel is good news. The good news is this, God loves you, he's not out to get you. So God loves you so much that he wanted to do something to restore our connection with him, but sin had to be paid for. Jesus came, he lived perfectly, he died innocently on the cross, and by his own power he raised himself from the dead. And by doing all that, he created forgiveness for our sins. Bad news is you're a sinner. Good news is, the gospel is, there's a savior who loves you. And the Bible says that when I confess my sin, when I admit that I'm a sinner, God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of unrighteousness or cleanse me of my sin. And when that happens, that makes me acceptable again to God. That's called receiving our salvation. We call it becoming a Christian, starting our relationship with God, getting saved is what I called it growing up, soul winning. It all means the same thing. It means that I'm a sinner and I agreed with God that I'm a sinner. Christ is the only savior. I agreed with God that Christ is the only savior and I accepted the salvation of Jesus Christ and gave my life over to the definition and the direction of him. And that's the gospel, right? So when Jesus said we spread the seed, the seed is the word of God, the seed is the gospel, we're spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of who Jesus is. And he says the kingdom of God works like that. You spread the gospel, that's our job as Christ followers, we spread the gospel, it lands on the soil it lands on. Some of it's good, some of it's full of weeds, some of it's rocky, some of it is fertile. God grows it, right? And then it produces a harvest. It's like a mustard seed. All the little things that we do to spread the gospel. So sometimes we start spreading the gospel by earning the right of a relationship. 
So sometimes we feed hungry kids. Sometimes we build hospitals. Sometimes we're nice to our neighbor. Uh, sometimes we help out a coworker. We'll do good deeds to be friends and loving to someone, but then we have to cross a line. We have to attach the gospel to the good deed. I have a relationship, but I also want you to know there's good news and there's bad news, and we'll attach the gospel. And Jesus said that starts off as like a small little seed. That, that can be something super tiny that just goes in the ground, but it grows, it has an eternal effect, and that's how the kingdom of God works. We spread the seed, it takes root, and then it produces something that is eternal. Okay? So when Jesus says things like, uh, go and, and make disciples of all nations, he says that in Matthew chapter 28, and teach them the gospel, preach the gospel, teach them everything, teach them to follow me. That's what he's talking about. You as my followers, you go and you are the seed sowers. You throw the seed, it lands where it lands, God does what he does, and you never really know the enormity of the effect, but we're to be faithful in sowing the seed. So it's fascinating then when you start looking at the very, very early followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus created the church, right? So the church is not a man-made organization, it's not a religious organization, it's not what the church is. The church is a spiritual, a spiritual entity that Jesus himself created, and we know in the Bible exactly when the church started. Uh, the Bible documents it, and it's called the day of Pentecost, it's when the church started. And so God created or kind of gathered all of these followers on a specific day, and then they went about creating and evolving into what we would call broadly the church. Well, the Bible describes how that process played out. And we would look at that process, how it played out in the scriptures, and we would say that process needs to continue to play out that way today because this is how the kingdom of God works. So the Bible says this in the book of Acts, I put this in your notes, when those original followers of Jesus heard Jesus say this about the kingdom of God and they heard things like the Great Commission, they started to act on it. Some of these people walked and talked and were like right there when Jesus said what he said. And this is how they put it into action. The first thing they did was this. The disciples of Jesus started to make disciples. People started telling people about the gospel of Jesus. They were sowing the seeds of the kingdom. So Acts chapter two, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread into prayer. So the day of Pentecost happens, a bunch of people accept Jesus all at once to this supernatural thing. And the first thing those people did was they formed life groups. And they got together in their life groups and they went to people's houses and they prayed and they were friends, they ate together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching or today we would say they devoted themselves to knowing and understanding the Bible. And then they started to act on what they saw there because they saw like the kingdom of God is this, go into all the world and make disciples, right? They saw all that. So they started to act on it and in Acts chapter six, verse one, uh, the Bible says in those days the numbers of disciples was increasing. It went viral and disciples were making disciples. Acts chapter six, verse seven, the word of God spread. The numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests also became obedient to the faith. So everything starts in Jerusalem. Christianity started off as this little sect of Judaism. 
Jesus was the promised Messiah. People are hearing that news, responding to the gospel. Even Jewish priests were starting to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And the gospel went from person to person to person to person because disciples of Christ make disciples. Well, the next thing that the early church then did was this. Churches started to make churches. Disciples make disciples and churches make disciples churches. And if you flip to the Bible in, uh, to Acts chapter 11, just go to the right, maybe, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages, <coughs> to Acts chapter 11, you start to see churches in one city help to organize churches in the cities around them. Verse 19, chapter 11, Acts. Now, those who had been scattered by persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So they went from people to people, and then from city to city churches, people organized in the churches, and God is the one who directs us to do that, and it's all through the New Testament. They organized, they went from individuals to life groups to churches, and then those churches started sending people to other cities, and they would, they would repeat the process. They would make disciples and kind of life groups, and then churches. Disciples make disciples, and then churches make churches, and then finally what you see is that churches started to send church planters and missionaries. It was the next step. And if you go just over the page to uh, Acts chapter 12, verse 25, you start to see church planters sent. When uh, Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Disciples make disciples, churches make churches, churches send church planters and missionaries. Uh, if you've been around here for a while, you might have been here when uh, we sent Pastor Tony and Jessica to go start the Medina East Campus. And if you were at that service, we had Pastor Tony and Jessica come up here. They knelt down. Uh, myself and the elders came up and we laid hands on them. We prayed over them and we sent them out. Uh, last spring when we launched our Barberton campus, we, we did this down at Norton. Uh, I went down to Norton. Pastor Jeff and Marsha Martell are leading that work. They, they came forward. The elders came forward. We laid hands on them and we sent them out. Uh, before we send missionaries to Chad or wherever in the world they're going, we'll, we'll gather them together. The elders will lay hands on them and we'll send them out. We're, we're doing what the ancient church was doing. This has happened for a couple thousand years now. Disciples make disciples. Churches make churches. Churches send out missionaries and church planters. And God empowers that and uses it. In fact, the Bible says in Acts chapter 13, the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. This is how the gospel has moved. 
that the people, God spread the seeds, God nourishes it, he prepares the soil, and then little things grow into these massive things, and it covers the whole area. It's fascinating, if you wanna read something fun, read uh, Acts chapter 13 through Acts chapter 20. This is all happening all through there. It's the very early history of the church. Sometimes, uh, this is so important to God, sometimes God intervenes directly. There's this really cool story in Acts chapter 16, go over a few pages again to the right, where God directly intervened in the process of, of, of spreading the gospel. Paul and uh, the apostle Paul and his friends, they were gonna go into this one part of Asia and God stopped them and said, I want you to go somewhere else. So just like imagine like, we're, we're gonna go to Cuyahoga Falls and God stops us and says, no, don't go to Cuyahoga Falls, right? It's not because God hates Cuyahoga Falls. Don't email me, I won't read it, right? So the, but he, he stops them from going to this one city and then Paul has a vision from God, verse nine, in the, in, uh, during the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God called us to preach the gospel to them. God will specifically send churches and church planters to certain areas. Uh, one of the biggest questions I get when we talk about 30 and 30 is uh, how do we decide where to go, right? If the whole point is to make the gospel clear and accessible, isn't that like everywhere? Like, you know, isn't there like, how do you decide where to go? Well, when we're, when we're praying about where to go, there's a few factors that come in. Uh, first of all, we'll look and say, is the, is the gospel clear and accessible in a given area? So we would look at the Ellet neighborhood, for instance, and we would say, man, 18,000 people, and there's maybe... Uh, one or two really Bible teaching churches right there, they probably need some oomph to it. The other thing that we do is we'll partner with other churches that we trust, right? So God looks at the church in terms of the city, not in terms of the, of the specific location. So God sees the church of Akron, not just Grace Church. So the, the churches that we trust, we tend to think corporately. So uh, when we were gonna go to Ellet, I called uh, Tim Armstrong, who's the pastor of the chapel, Joe Coffey, who's the pastor of Christ Community Chapel, Chad Allen, who's up at CVC, Butch, who's down at Maranatha, uh, Dave, who is at Arlington Memorial Baptist, all, and there's more, the, all these churches that we trust. And I'll ask them, hey, are you guys gonna do anything there, right? Uh, Tim actually was thinking about it, and he said, well, if you're going, you go. We're gonna go here instead right? And we're going to coordinate as the, the elders of the Akron Church and say, let's work together to make sure that the gospel is, is clear and accessible. That's the second thing we're going to do. And then the last thing we're going to do is I'm going to wait for a God moment. And that sounds weird, but it's not at all. Let me explain this to you. How does a church in Norton wind up in Bath? That's weird. Because there was a group of people in Bath saying, will you come help us? And we're gonna look at the scripture and we'll say, well, God, God does that all the time, so we're gonna go to Bath. How does a church in Bath wind up at the east side of Medina? Because there was a group of people on the east side of Medina saying, will you come help us? How do we wind up in Barberton? There was a group of people who live in Barberton saying, will you come help us? How do we wind up in Ellet? Well, there was a little church there that said, will you come help us? How does a church in Akron, Ohio, wind up in Chad, Africa, 
Who's ever heard of Chad Africa? I know a lot of Africans, none of them are named Chad. How do you wind up in Chad Africa, right? Because we have friends who have friends in Chad Africa. And they said, you won't believe what's going on. Will you come to Chad Africa and see it? We landed in Chad Africa, met our African brothers and sisters who were doing unbelievable things for the cause of Christ in a predominantly Muslim country. Some of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my life. We learned so much more from them than they learned from us. But they looked at us and said, will you come help us? How did we wind up in Brazil or in Mazatlan, Mexico or in Haiti? Will you come help us? We're talking about opening up some works in Atlanta, Georgia. Why would we be in Atlanta, Georgia? Well, we have people there who live there who see a huge need and opportunity and they have said, will you come help us? Churches, disciples make disciples, churches make churches, churches send missionaries and church planters. And oftentimes it's because God has intervened. And we're not necessarily having visions. There's nothing weird about it. You just, you just look at somebody saying that and then you do all the math and you realize, oh man, God orchestrated that somehow and we're gonna to respond to it. He has always worked with his church that way. He has always worked with his people that way. In fact, this is why you're here. The reason that you're here at Grace this weekend is because somehow somebody made the gospel clear and accessible and you got access to it. It's how the church works. How does the church move from this small little sect of Judaism in ancient Jerusalem to Akron, Ohio? Because disciples make disciples and churches make churches and churches send workers. See? So we are the direct result of the book of Acts being studied and acted upon just like it was for the first time. We would say, well, God is directing us that through scripture to keep doing it. And the gospel went viral and here we are. We're responding to it in one form or another today. So we look at that and we say, well, that's the nature of God. It's like the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that seed is sown and then God grows it and it, little things grow into big things. That's just the, how God works, right? And we, say, we would say that's the nature of God. We would say that's the work of God's people. The work of God's people is that disciples make disciples and churches make churches and churches send workers. That's what God's people have always done. That's what we'll continue to do. We would look and say that's the history of the church. You, you map the history of the church through the scripture and then even past the pages of scripture and they're always sending missionaries and churches are always starting churches and et cetera, right? And then we would say, well, that's, we're a direct result of that and we are. Somebody did that for us. We're gonna do that for somebody else. That's what a church does. It's a corporate directive that has to be interacted with in a personal way. The, the me becomes the we. My interaction with God becomes our interaction with God and these are the things that God has called us to do, okay? So it's there and it's not even that hard. I mean, I just explained it in 15 minutes. It's not even that hard to get a, a hold of it when you, when you see it and know it's there. The question becomes, do we act on it? And why wouldn't, why wouldn't a church do something that's that crystal clear in the scripture? Why wouldn't disciples make disciples or churches make churches or churches send workers? When, when that's the, it's the scripture, it's the pattern, it's the history and we're the result. What would keep us from doing that? And that's what I wanna talk about for a couple of minutes. What, what are the obstacles, the big challenges 
that keep churches from making churches and doing what God calls us to do, okay? Let's look at this. Here's the first one I wrote down. The first obstacle that keeps us from making churches is receiving God's grace in vain. Receiving God's grace in vain, that's a Bible term. And it means this. When I take the message of Jesus and I keep it and I hoard it for myself. Here's one of the the biggest temptations we face in our culture. It's not because our culture is horrible, it's just the way that we're wired. It's not that big of a deal, we just have to guard against it. One of the biggest temptations we have in our culture is to only personalize our faith. Is to only personalize our faith. It is very much the, the mindset of a North American to say, man, I have discovered something wonderful. I have discovered something that brings deep meaning and fulfillment into my life. I have discovered what I believe is the, is the key to salvation. And it's very much our wiring as North Americans to take something in and then to keep it because we don't want to bother or offend someone else with it. I don't wanna undercut what you believe. I don't wanna say you're wrong. I don't wanna like be the pushy Jesus jerk guy. Like I, but I am so grateful that I found something that means something to me, okay? Now, the Bible is very clear that our faith is personal. It is in no way private. Did you catch that? Our faith is personal. It is in no way private. And if I only personalize my faith, if, it's all, if my faith is about me, what God did for me, and my, my faith never becomes what God does through the we, then I have not taken my faith deep enough. The Bible is very clear that God interacts with us personally and then he grafts us into something corporate called the church of Jesus Christ. And I am not to hoard my faith, I'm to be a part of proclaiming it because disciples make disciples and churches make churches and churches send workers. The biggest obstacle or one of the biggest obstacles is when I keep all of that for myself and I don't love people enough or do the work of an evangelist that the scripture talks about and I don't spread the seed onto the soils where God can nurture it and grow it, okay? People who receive God's grace in vain, a church is a sum total of its individual parts. People who receive God's grace in vain become churches who receive God's grace in vain and those churches never start churches. The second big obstacle is this, false teachers. The Bible talks a lot about this. False teachers keep churches from starting churches. Uh, The book of Acts is really the record of God birthing the church and how it moved. And then the, we call them the Pauline epistles, the, the, the writings of the Apostle Paul when he's speaking on God's behalf to us through the New Testament. What he's really doing is explaining how the church works and how individual followers of Jesus work within it. And one of the biggest things, if you read those writings, one of the biggest things the Apostle Paul writes about is watch out for false teachers. When Grace Church thinks about planting 30 churches, is incredibly important, the Apostle Paul says, that those churches are good of sound doctrine and good theology. That's why we're so committed to our moody Bible training program. It's why we want our pastors to go to seminary, because we want to reproduce biblical churches, churches that have sound doctrine and good theology and teach the Bible. Paul also says you have to watch out for false teachers, 
because false teachers will stop the organic movement of the church of Jesus Christ. And you know what he says is the biggest sign of false teachers? The biggest sign of false teachers is when they use the gospel for personal gain. Any religious leader who stands up and looks at people and says, if you want access to God, you have to gain it through me. And I determine what that means is a false teacher. Any pastor that stands up and says, if you want access to God, you gotta, you gotta give me your money. I know of one church, they take five offerings a service. Hmm? I thought about it, but it, right? They, they take five, why? Because they have to support the lifestyle of the pastor. Any pastor that stands up and says, I better drive a fancy car, or you need to put me in a $65 million private jet, right? is a false teacher. I don't want a private jet. I'll take an F-150 quad cab though. I mean, if you guys are feeling generous, right? But any false teacher who says, you, in order to get access to God, you have to go through me is a false teacher. Paul warns about it. And it will stop the growth of the church because that pastor wants people because he wants their money. He wants people because he wants their adoration. He fears the other pastors around him. They can't have too much influence or be too talented or be too successful because they might draw away people and that would take away my money and my fame. See, it's a false teacher. A godly teacher is gonna look at their church and say, listen, the reason God drew us together is so we can go proclaim the gospel. Uh, if a guy's got talent, let's send him out and start a campus and a bunch of people with him so that those people over there can also hear the gospel. This is why as a church, we have to be committed to spreading the seed and spreading the gospel and also committed to training up the men and the women, the leaders who are gonna go lead those churches so that they know God's word and they have good doctrine and sound theology because a false teacher will, will kill and disgrace and discredit the movement of God. The third thing that the apostles saw uh, that, that God says is a big obstacle is this, a big obstacle to churches starting churches is corporate safety. When a church decides that they've gotta play it safe, and that's the corporate decision of the church, not just an individual decision, but a corporate decision, that our whole goal as a church is to hang on to what we've got. We gotta make budget. You know how much starting new churches cost? Man, if we had that money in the bank, we gotta, we gotta make sure that everything runs smoothly. You, you send you know, 200 people out of here to go start something in Ellet, that just messes everything up. We got all of our rosters filled and it's running like clockwork. Listen to me. The minute that a church plays it safe, it's dead. Put that on Twitter. The minute that a church plays it safe, it's dead. Because we are a people of faith we are not a religious organization. The budget does not drive the church. The spreadsheet is not equal to the pages of scripture, right? The strategy does not overcome the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the minute that we decide that we're gonna hang on to what we have, we've lost it all. And all of us know there are plenty of big buildings with dead churches in them. And churches who will not be committed to making other churches have already killed themselves because it's the calling of God's people. It's what we do. If you're not committed to reaching the lost and committed to starting churches and committing to sending workers, you're not even a church anymore. 
It's the very nature of what the people of God do. And corporate safety will kill that and destroy it. Here's the fourth thing. The fourth thing that will keep churches from starting churches is a fear of sacrifice. A fear of sacrifice. I love this passage, one of my favorites in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the Apostle Paul, and he says this. Listen to this. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been, in, in, I've been uh, constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Do you know when Paul was beaten five times, 40 lashes minus one. Do you know what he was doing when he was hit with a rod, when he was stone pelted with rocks? Do you know what he was doing when he was shipwrecked three times? What he was doing when he was hungry, cold, and naked? He was starting churches. That's what he was doing. And every time he was persecuted and every time he sacrificed, Paul had this tenacity about him. He would get back up and go again. He would not stop. The missionaries of old, and even the ones today, the church of old, they, they, they will not go away because they would look and they would say, this is the very nature of a church. It's what the people of God do. I get asked all the time by other pastors, How do, why is grace so big? How does it grow? What are you doing? What's your secret formula? There is nothing that we're doing that other churches don't do or can't do. We are not smarter than everybody else. We are not more talented than everybody else. And while your pastor is obviously more attractive than most, none of that is the secret to our success, right? How does a church, when Pastor Bob came and in essence started Grace in 1972, how does a church have a 45-year unbroken sustained growth rate? How do you grow from 40 people at Christmas time in 1972 to 10,000 people at Christmas time in 2015? How does that happen? The secret to success, the secret sauce of Grace Church, bar none, is her people's willingness to sacrifice. Period. Whenever God has looked corporately at Grace Church, and said, this is what I need from you now. I need your money, I need your time, I need you to uproot your family and go start another campus, I need you to go to the mission field. Whenever God has looked at Grace Church corporately and said, this is what I need and want from you now, the people of Grace Church corporately have looked back at God and said, you don't need to ask twice. Done. We'll do it. And time and time and time again, sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's inconvenience, sometimes it's middle of the night, go love somebody and help them. Time and time and time again, when God has asked the people of Grace Church for something, the people of Grace Church have looked back and said, you don't need to ask us twice, we're in. And you string that together for 45 years and God enlarges our harvest of righteousness. 
Tens of thousands of people have come to know Christ because the people of Grace Church have spread the seed and spread the seed and spread the seed and spread the seed and God grows it. The moment we start to fear that, the moment that we say, well, that's enough because it's not going away. We have a 30-year vision to start more churches. We're only three years into it. It's always gonna take more money. It's expensive. It's always gonna take another family saying, you know what, we'll go to the mission field. What Mitch and Susan Sintek just did three weeks ago. We'll go to Chad, Africa. It's always gonna, there's always gonna be another group of people where, where we stand up and say, well, who wants to dislodge your family and go to Ellet? That's all, it's never changed from the book of Acts through 2,000 years of church history to this little group of people in Barberton to us sitting here today. It's always been the same thing. The people of God being the people of God, acting on the heart of God. And the minute that we start to fear that sacrifice, we're done. We don't need God to meet budget. We don't need God to maintain buildings. We don't need God to keep everything safe and sound and everybody happy. What do you need God for? Every good business on the planet does all that stuff. There's nothing supernatural about that. But God involves himself in the impossible. And when the people of God look at their Lord and say, no need to ask twice, absolutely supernatural things happen. Here's the fifth obstacle. The fifth thing that keeps churches from starting churches is a failure to see the eternal. A failure to see the eternal. Revelation chapter five. In the, in the book of Revelation, God gave the apostle John a glimpse into the future. And John, uh, part of what he saw was what heaven was gonna be like. And so he recorded it for us. And this is a part of what heaven's gonna be like. Chapter five, verses nine and 10. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. The Apostle John looks, he says, you know what heaven's gonna be like? Everybody's gonna be there, it's gonna be incredible. There's gonna be a representation from every tribe, person, people, and language. People from all of those places, some of them are gonna respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ because seed was thrown on those soils. And there's gonna be a representation of all the people of earth, all the languages that have ever been spoken and all the groups of people that have ever existed, those who responded to the good news of Jesus are gonna be there in heaven, it's gonna be amazing. And if you have responded to the good news of Jesus, the Bible says you're gonna be there too and you're gonna enjoy what God has done and it's gonna be the most incredible thing. But God does not give us glimpses into eternity so that we can speculate about what eternity is gonna be like or we can do some foolish calculation and try to figure out when God is gonna return. The reason God gives us glimpses into eternity is so it defines our present reality. So that gives me the perspective I need to have because the Bible says that this life is but a vapor. It's here, it's gone. You're gonna be dead before you know it. 
and most of our life is gonna be in eternity. The Bible says what is mortal is gonna be swallowed up by life. Most of our existence has nothing to do with this planet, has everything to do with our time with the Lord. And that's why Jesus said you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. They cannot be destroyed, they cannot be ruined, they cannot be taken away, and you get to enjoy them forever. It's an eternal perspective. The Bible also tells us that in eternity, there's something called judgment. There's two types of judgment. The Bible says there's a judgment called the great white throne of judgment where every human being will stand before God. And the Bible says at that time that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Sooner or later, everybody's gonna believe that Jesus is God. And at that great white throne of judgment, the Bible says that Jesus is gonna separate the sheep from the goats. Those who have followed Jesus and received the gospel and confessed their sin and are defined and directed by Christ, they're gonna be welcomed into their internal inheritance, the Bible says. But those who have rejected God, who have said, I don't want that. I love my sin more than I love the Lord. I wanna do what I wanna do. I wanna live how I wanna live. The Bible says that they are going to go away to their eternal punishment. If you reject God on earth, you reject God eternally and you will be separated from him in eternal fire and hell. The Bible says it. The Bible says that after the great white throne of judgment, there's a second judgment. It's called the Bema Seat Judgment. If you've ever watched the Olympics, when you see the athletes receive their medals, the gold, silver, bronze, the platform they stand on is the Bema. It's a Greek word. It means a place of reward. And every follower of Jesus Christ will stand at the Bema Seat Judgment, not to determine whether or not we go to heaven or hell because we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you accept Christ, you're gonna go to heaven. The Bible's clear about it but to receive the reward, the things that we're gonna, we're gonna hold with gratitude and pride through all of eternity, our reward. The Bible says that at that beam of seat, that our lives will play out before us in real time. Everything we've ever done, every dime we've ever spent, every moment we've ever, we've ever invested. And the Bible says that our lives are gonna come before the Lord in judgment and it's gonna look kinda like this big ball of stuff and it's gonna be made of wood, hay, and straw which are earthly things that don't last but in there is also silver, gold, and precious stones which are eternal things that last forever. This is in 1 Corinthians. And that life is gonna go through the purifying fire of judgment is the way the Bible describes it. And the wood, hay, and straw, the earthly things that have no eternal value will be burned away. And what we'll be left with is the gold or the silver and the precious stones, the eternal things that will last forever. And in that moment, all of us who are followers of Jesus are gonna look and we're gonna wonder, that's what I accomplished with my life. All the hobbies are burned away. All the financial investments are burned away. All the job titles are burned away. All the the Netflix binging is burned away. Everything that I ever did to entertain and give and invest in myself is burned away. And I'm left with that which was eternal. No one has ever laid on their deathbed and said, man, I wish I wouldn't have helped start a church. That's never happened. No one's ever laid on her deathbed and said, oh man, I wish I I would have not discipled anybody. Why did I teach my kids about the Lord? It's never happened. No one's ever laid on her deathbed and said, man, I wish I would have never told anybody about Jesus. It's never happened. But countless people, and I've been with them, have laid on their deathbed and said, man, 
Why did I buy a bigger version of what I already had? Why did I play golf with that guy for 25 years and I never sowed seed? Why, why, did I, I, why did I work out with my friends, live with my roommate, and I was nice and I was polite, but I never told them about the person of Jesus Christ? The reason God tells us the future is to define the present. And churches that don't think eternally, that's gonna be expensive. So? That's gonna be really hard. So? I'm gonna have to really work more. The Apostle Paul says these light and momentary struggles will yield for themselves a glorious result. The mustard seed grows into the plant. The kingdom of God works that way. And the struggles and the price tags and the diff- of this vapor, who cares? When we get to stand and be with every tribe and every language and every nation and every people, and that reward plays out forever. See? Disciples who don't make disciples can't be grafted into churches that start churches and those churches will never send anybody. They'll exist as a social group in a building. But they will never experience the power of God. This is who the church is. This is what the church is. This is the calling of Jesus Christ. And it's a corporate calling that has to be received on a personal level. The me becomes the we. Don't only personalize your faith. You cannot find that in the Bible. It doesn't work that way. But the me becomes the we. What God calls us to, he calls you to. And running that to ground and understanding what is my place and role. God, what would you have me do? Disciples make disciples. Churches make churches. Churches send workers. All right, here's three questions for you. Here's the first one. Have you received the gospel? And this is my guess. This is kind of fun. My guess is that there's some of us here this weekend and we're, or watching online, and, and, and we're still stuck on I'm a sinner and God loves me. Like we, we, you checked out like four minutes into our conversation, which I will not take personally because God is working in you. The reason why you're stuck on that, why that keeps skipping like a scratch CD is because God loves you. It's, a, it's not weird, it's a spiritual thing that's happening. When you look and say, man, I, I don't know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I received the forgiveness of my sin. I don't know if God is defining and directing my life. I just don't know. I'm really hung up on that. Well, that's God reminding you that he loves you because he, he, he wants you to satisfy that so you don't let the question go. So have you received the gospel? Have you res- agreed with God that you're a sinner and agreed with God that Jesus is the only path of salvation, accepted the forgiveness of your sin, 
and yielded your life to the direction and the definition of God. You quit arguing with the Bible and you just locked in to what God says and what God wants. Have you ever done that? And if you've never done that, I wanna encourage you to do that right now. From your heart to God's heart, there's no magic words. God doesn't care what you say, he cares what you mean. So from your heart to God's heart, confess your sins, receive your salvation, and allow God, yield your life, allow God to define and direct your life. Second question. The church is the sum total of its individual parts, so what's your part? As a follower of Jesus, the Bible is crystal clear that you individually need to satisfy the question of what role do I play in the church? The corporate direction of the church is received personally, so what's your part? Are you called to do what? Are you called to go help launch a new campus? I don't know. Are you called to go to a mission field? I don't know. Are you called to, to underwrite all that financially? I don't know. Are you called to, to fill the gap that's vacated by the person who went to go start the new campus? I, don't, I just don't know. You have to figure that out with God. But you're called to be a part of it. That part I do know because the Bible's so clear about it. So run it to ground. The me has to become the we. And this is what we do. We the people of God. Last question, are you a disciple that makes disciples? Listen, mom, dad, do your kids know who Jesus is? Do your kids know what the church is? Do you, do you take them? Take them on a mission, go with them on a mission trip, go with them to the city. Are, are you raising them for that to be second nature? That's a disciple that makes a disciple. Does your roommate know? Does your classmate know? Your teammate know? Your friend at the gym know? See, it, it, it's wonderful to be kind. It's wonderful to be loving. But I have to attach the gospel. Have you plant, you're not planting seeds until who Jesus is is made clear. Being kind is not planting seeds. Being kind is being kind, and it earns the right of a relationship. It's important to be kind. It's important to be a moral person. It's important to be a good person. That all stuff is good. It's not seed planting. Seed planting is when I start talking about the good news and the bad news. Making disciples, and that's what disciples do. They make other disciples. And it starts with me, and it moves to my family, and then it moves in the circles past that. And is that something that you're doing is a priority of your life that you step forward to. You gotta overcome our cultural instincts a little bit. And I boldly proclaim that. Now I do it gently, you might do it creatively, you might say it verbally, you might write it in an email, you might write a song, I don't know. There's a thousand ways that you plant a seed. But is the clear gospel a part of who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ? I'm gonna ask the band to come out and I'm gonna pray for us and, and the band will create a little space for us to thank and to pray. And I encourage you guys to do that, to give, give God a license in your heart and life to run these things to ground and to, to see, am, am I overcoming these obstacles to do and be who God's called me to be? Jesus, help us even now in all of this Help us to see you clearly, to respond to you strongly, boldly. And God, make it clear in our lives. 
It can be confusing, we can be uncertain. Some of us are willing, we just don't know what to do. So Holy Spirit, will you lead us and give us clarity on that? Work in us even now in these few still moments. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen.